Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of Lee 2B, the sassiest podcast for B2B. I'm your host, Lee Moskowitz. Our guest today is Dan Caffiero, an award-winning marketer whose journey took him from startups to ad agencies, working with tech giants like Intel along the way. Today, he's an ABM guru, sought-after speaker, and a powerhouse in the MarTech world. With a strategic mindset, a love for details, and an unwavering commitment to extreme ownership, Dan has taken Seagate Technologies by storm as the Senior Program Manager for ABM, MarTech, and Paid Media. Recognized as a demand-based champion and Seagate's sales and marketing champion, Dan knows the ins and outs of the marketing game. Beyond marketing, Dan's a fitness enthusiast, nature lover, art connoisseur, foodie, and podcast fanatic. He's on a mission to conquer the ABM and MarTech world and is excited to share his insights with us. Get ready for another episode of Lee 2B. Hey, Dan. Hey, Lee. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Welcome to my podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I like to, I know you've been on a ton of podcasts. I like to, to get down and dirty pretty quickly. I also like to dissect job titles for our listeners. Your title, and I'll say it again, Senior Program Manager, Account-Based Marketing, MarTech, and Paid Media. Mm-hmm. Now, those are three different things. They overlap, but they're different. Yeah. Often mm-hmm. different roles, sometimes different departments. So I want to get into that because those three worlds are also where I come from. Can you give me a quick explain like I'm five for those three definitions for our listeners? And that was ABM, MarTech, and Pain Media. Yep. So ABM or account-based marketing is essentially a smarter form of lead generation where we're looking at targeting a small group or a varying size group of accounts uh, through various B2B strategies and tactics. So it's usually one-to-many, one-to-few, and one-to-one. And those are strategies that correlate with various areas of the funnel or the size of the list that we're going after. Essentially, any uh, technology that a marketer would use, the two main ones would be a CRM or marketing automation platform. So we use Salesforce and um, we used to use Eloqua. Now we're switching over to Pardot. Uh, the marketing technology can vary from anything from data enrichment platforms, uh, ABM platforms. So we use demand-based and tech target. We also use things like LeadSpace, Seamless, um, and a bunch of other platforms essentially that sit in our tech stack. And then a paid media, pretty self-explanatory, but essentially the opposite of organic, right? So any sort of paid impressions through social, search, and various ABM tactics. So things like direct buys, content syndication, BAMP programs, stuff like that. Nice, nice. Yeah, and I also like to ask, because everybody has their own way of explaining it to people too. Which is which is why it's important because yes, everyone can Google it, but only the experts can explain. Like I'm five, but but like I mentioned, so Martech, ABM, Pain Media, the, those do overlap, but they they sit in different areas sometimes, different roles. Um, I mean, I've done all three because usually if you're a marketer, you're a marketer of many trades, many hats, um, things like that. But but talk to me about why those three things are perhaps separate in your title and and dig into those things. So when I came onto the role about two and a half, three years ago, um, it was essentially mainly focused through paid acquisition with an ABM strategy applied. But over time, 
you know, we continued to do paid activations that were ABM centric. And then also my role kind of split where it was 50% campaigns, 50% platforms. So I was executing um, large paid ABM uh, campaigns, those also bringing on ABM platforms and then making those two work together. So it was a mixture of inbound and outbound, right? We wanted to create a steady stream of leads inbound that were associated with our target account list. So that's where the paid campaigns came in and the ABM. And we also wanted to teach our team how to prospect diligently. So outbound play, right? So we wanted to bring on the platforms, train the sales teams in them so they could then use things like intense signals, website traffic, and an engagement scoring methodology that I developed to help them prioritize and stack rank accounts for outreach. So inbound, outbound, how those two work together, how we can really uh, align marketing and sales so they can turn insights into actions. So I like that ABM and paid media are are two separate things called out in your title, mainly Mm -hmm. because when people hear or say ABM, they're typically talking about ads. They're talking about LinkedIn ads, Mm -hmm. programmatic. They're talking about advertising, but that's not what ABM is. So (laughs) talk talk to us a little bit about the difference. Yes, ABM often might involve an advertising component, but tell our listeners why ABM is, is not ads, why they're not equivalent. That's such a great comment to make. I think ABM is is different everywhere I go or like everywhere I see, like everyone's doing it a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, for me, and what I think most people agree on is ABM or ABX, as they call it, um, it's a strategy. And you can implement that strategy across a variety of tactics, right? So as I mentioned before, the different strategies, one to many, one to few, one to one. With the one-to-many approach, that's much more digital activation play, right? Marketing, air cover, that is with ads, right? That's a lot of uh, digital ads, personalized ads. We do personalized digital display through demand base. It could also be a lead gen program through kind of syndication or BAMP, but associated with a target account list. Then as you go further down funnel, you'll see things like one-to-few or one-to-one, which could be different tactics. Again, similar strategy, but the idea is, you know, they're still getting that marketing air cover, still getting those ads, but they're much more... Um, high priority accounts because they're lower down the funnel. So we want to push them to sales faster. So they'll get things like customized email, email nurtures. They'll get things like customized web pages, uh, direct mail, invitations to events, executive outreach. So I would say that, you know, everyone's getting the marketing air cover that is ads. But as you score higher with our engagement scoring, you get lower in the funnel and then you get different campaigns, different messaging, different strategies, different tactics, different executions and activations. And of course, the money we're spending um, increases, right? Because you're lower towards the funnel, closer to conversion. Yeah, I think the real the real distinction here is ABM is a commitment to personalization, customization. Mm -hmm. It's a commitment to marketing to buying committees. It's a commitment to investing in different stakeholders. It's not ads. It's It's not a tool. It is a strategy. Yeah, the first thing you want to do is research, you know, use your fit your intent, your demographics, firmographics, technographics to build the right audience for you. And then you can start targeting them through various strategies and campaigns, right? I'd probably start with the one-to-many approach just to send out a little bit of a digital signal or a stimuli to see who's responding to those campaigns and then go from there. But I think you can definitely start with, again, too, it depends if you're doing B2B or B2C. I'd say like ABM is much more of a B2B play, but it can be used for B2C as well. Uh, yeah, that's a perfect segue. One, many many of our listeners probably know, know Seagate Technologies, but for those who don't, could you just give a quick overview? And then my question in the segue here is there is that B2C component as well with, with Seagate. So I was curious where a- ABM fit into to that. 
So Seagate Technology has over 40 years experience in the digital storage space or and in just the hard drive space in general. So we have over 40 products that are hard drive specific. And then uh, I came on two, yeah, two and a half years ago to help launch our cloud initiative called Live Cloud. So while we do have, you know, over 40 different um, consumer facing products, you know, for gaming, there's probably a Seagate hard drive in, you know, everyone's computer. That's what everyone at least tells me when I meet them. But uh, half the world's store, half the world's data is stored on Seagate drive. So that's a cool stat we like to use a lot. So wow. yeah, <laughs> lots of data is stored across Seagate drives. And it's an exciting place to be. I think we're in a we're in a growth trajectory phase. We've got a lot of cool new stuff coming down the line. And I think it's going to shape the market. And it's been a really interesting experience for me just because, you know, coming from a place that's traditionally hard drive specific, right, an actual product, and then helping launch a service. So it's a whole new learning curve for the company. And for me to come on and help them, you know, launch this product through ABM has been a really exciting time. So you mentioned TAM before, total addressable market. Many companies struggle to to increase their their TAM. That that's a big part of your your role, increasing TAM. What would you say to people and just why is it important to increase TAM? And then what strategies or techniques would you give to marketers on, on where to start? So I think it's important to have a constantly evolving total addressable market, right? Because as you launch new products, as you launch new features, you can't just keep hitting that same old list over and over again because the response rate will eventually just drop to zero, right? How do you expand that? Well, for one thing, when we switched to using ICP parameters within Demandbase to build our TAM, it actually increased 40%, which was pretty wild. I think it was really important for us, right? Just using things like, you know, plugging in verticals, revenue size, data capacity sizes, built using the platforms themselves to build a TAM makes more sense than plugging in a list because um, historically and across the board, all the platforms I've seen, their match rate is around 50 to 60%. So regardless if you have DB, Terminus, Sixth Sense, like their match rates are only as good as what they can de-anonymize within their own CRM. So when you start using the platforms themselves to build the TAMs, you're getting a lot larger size to go after. And again, when you build a TAM, you're not going after that whole TAM, right? Because it really depends on your budget. But what you do is you create a target uh, target account list based off the total addressable market. So when you start layering intense signals, product-specific technographics, hardware, software technographics, you're really shrinking down that TAM to a more focused uh, towel. But again, too, for us, like we have multiple products, multiple services. So if I'm creating one TAM, I can create multiple towels from that, right? And I think that's that's the important thing to look at, right? Like, because we'll have product-specific target account lists that vary, right? Depending on, you know, certain pages that are visited, certain intent signals that are given. If they're working with certain hardware partners or software partners, then we know that we're a good potential for them to, you know, enter. I like to think of it as total addressable market. Not everybody in the market is your customers. If you think that, you're, you're, you need help. Uh, not everybody <laughs> is your customers. Then there's the potential of people who could be your customers, but only a certain percentage of those people are going to be your customers for various factors, various reasons. It's your job to figure that out and then build that target account list of people who match that criteria. But we can't just only hit those people. So eventually we either have to evolutionize the product or tap into some other pain point that we might not have realized the product also solves. So what are what are some some ways of increasing it whether it's tapping into a product use case that you might not have thought of or going into a new product change 
That's a great question. I think for us, you know, everyone does need data storage. They might not need it right now. But again, over time, everyone is like, oh, we, we need more storage. I mean, I'm sure you get those pings from Apple all the time. It's like, you need more storage. You're like, no, I don't. No, I don't. But you do. And then you lose everything. I'm an Android it's guy. Faster when you're like, no, like I should have bought more. So I would say everyone does need it. Just so you might not need it right now. But there obviously is like a mixture of supply and demand. So if you need it and the, and the supply isn't there, you're kind of screwing yourself over. So I would just say plan appropriately if you know you're going to create more data and you need to store more data you need to access more archival data it really just depends on like how you're planning the process and for us right i think it can be vertical specific and it really just depends on who's creating the most data right so a lot of video creates a lot of data storage so for us looking at you know media entertainment verticals manufacturing verticals even education right as a vertical is important so i think for us adding more verticals adding a, a different parameters can really expand that towel. But I think too, like we're measuring that with, you know, do we have the right messaging to address those markets before we enter them? And I think it's helpful for us because we focus a lot on horizontal use case content that just makes sense, right? So like backup and recovery, disaster relief. We have a very um, horizontal based messaging that goes across vertical. Because I think when you verticalize the messaging, it's kind of hard to say like, oh, because we're both in the same vertical, we're going to hit the same message. But that that varies greatly, right? Depending on the size of the company and how they're set up and, and how they, they work. So I mean, the big the big answer, and you, you hit on it, is it depends. That's that's the answer for everything, really. It depends. That's and like that's, that's, kind of, <laughs> that's what ABM is, though. ABM is it depends because your account-based marketing should depend on your company, your solution, and then those accounts. Obviously, right. you need to get that overlap. You need to figure out who the different buying committees are. And this is my segue into talking about buying committees because again, I'm in ABM, I'm in marketing, but buying committee might not be a term everyone's familiar with. It's not It's not like the PTA of people just like hanging around looking to buy stuff. It, it refers to something. So talk to us about buying committee. Sure. So the buying committee is... Um... I would say it's about six to eight people, right? That's what we've been been hearing. I think it shrinks or enlarges depend on the size of the economy and the size of the company, right? So if you're at a startup, the buying committee, it's probably two to three people. It's probably, you know, the the, the co-founder and maybe their their VP or their director. If you're a large company like Seagate, it's probably six to eight people, right? And there are decision makers and there are influencers. There are people using the platform and there are people implementing it, but they not they might not be the one who have the final say, right? Or the sign off. So when you're looking at the buying committee, you're looking to influence six to eight people to make a decision. And I think the best way to do that is to identify an internal champion, someone who's going to use your product, who's going to be successful with your product or service and help launch them. So what you do is you empower them and then they bring the team on, right? Because if you have a demo call with one person, not super helpful. I, I doubt a lot of people are going to watch that recording or, or get involved. But if you can get three to four people on a demo, then you really kind of bolstered a project kickoff internally if it hasn't started already, right? Because multiple people are involved. They want to understand what the next steps are. They can see how this product or service affects them. So I would say, you know, the buying committee is important. And we use tools like Tech Target where we can see the entire buying committee at a company and then use click to add to export them and plug them right into our CRM. So we can export up to 10 people per company and then put them into different outreach cadences and sequences based on their title, based on their interests, based on their pain points. So that way we're hitting them with the right message at the right time to show them how our product or service works for them. And not just them, but obviously their collaborators, right? So depending on the department, if it's business, finance, if it's legal, if it's IT, right, they all need their own messaging based on their persona, based on their pain point. Yeah, a few a few great things you hit on. 
I want to get into champions, but you mentioned so there's there's six or so people in the buying committee. You have their uh, names, email addresses. <laughs> say that again. I would say at large say enterprises, at smaller companies, SMBs, it's probably a lot smaller just because, you know. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, but, but let's say we're talking enterprise here. Let's talk enterprise. There's six to eight people in the decision making process. Smaller orgs are going to be even fewer people. Is it then I am going to market to those people individually? I'm going to figure out a way to serve ads to, to only those people? Or is it I am going to target the the general types of those people that they would be included in in, in the, the marketing? So I think it's both. I think it's a two-pronged approach, right? So with demand-based, we can do um, function or title targeting. So we can title specifically certain job functions or titles or personas. And that's more, again, one-to-many approach where you're you know doing the marketing air cover. But once uh, we've done the account mapping, then we can do more one-to-few, one-to-one, right? So it's Lee Moskowitz at X company. He likes Y and Z. Let's send him a direct mailer that's focused on this messaging, or let's put him in a custom email nurture that's focused on this. We can create a custom landing page. So I think if the buying committee is unknown, then they're kind of in this like gen pop marketing campaign where are like, all right, these personas are getting this, these titles are getting that. But once they're identified, once you're collaborating with sales and you're building that relationship and you're getting on these calls and you're listening to the recordings, and you're figuring out their pain points, then you know who they are as people. And then you're doing more research, right? Oh, he has a daughter that's going to college. Maybe we'll send him something along those lines, right? Or, you know, maybe she's interested in X, Y, Z. Let's do something around that. So I think it's really about actively listening and then creating really customized, personalized content or tactical executions that will make them realize that you're listening, right? I think a lot of us get a lot of spam messages, but the ones that really break through are the ones that have shown that they've done the research. And even if you're not going to buy now, you always remember that, right? Like, oh, like maybe they listened to a podcast and they figured out that I like XYZ and they did something custom around that. So they're really putting in the extra effort versus just spamming me and a thousand other people. Have you watched The Office? Are you an Office fan? I've watched so, do it. Do you remember? Watched it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> well, I'll talk to the audience who are our fans. There, so Michael Scott, Steve Carell's character, has this whole system for remembering all these different things. Um, and like he is like the ultimate personalizer. Yeah, it's not always politically politically correct. Like he has these coded <laughs> systems, and it's like he has a gay son, which means and it's like G for green, which means the son's gay, which also means don't mention his gay son. I don't know. It's something like that. <laughs> And that's what that reminds me of sometimes. <laughs> but, that's funny. Um, but back to smart stuff. So we talked about champion and getting somebody on board who's not the decision maker. And that is super important because too many companies are going to be like, hey, we want meetings. That's our metric. We're only going to target to the actual people who sign the check, sign the paper. And it just doesn't work like that. You need to... And that's what ABM kind of is, is yes, there's a decision makers, but you have the champions, pioneers, you have the influencers. I kind of like to say, like, there's a reason toy commercials are marketed to kids and not just, you know, their parents too. Kids aren't the ones buying them, but the kids are going to ask their parents for them. So when your users are like, hey, I need more storage now, then they go to the decision makers. So I talked a bit, but, but you have a bunch of say on champions. So talk that, about that was great explanation because the parents saying, what do you want for Christmas? The kid's like, well, I've seen a thousand ads from Hasbro for this. So I want that. And that's exactly it. The decision maker, you know, they're busy. They're not doing the research about implementation. They're not using the tool, but they want the result. So how do they get the result? 
you know, maybe they get an email and they're like, oh, this looks like a platform that can give me the result I want. You go dig into this. Come back to me with a summary. Let's get on a call. Only though, when you've already had one or two calls and you already know out of, you know, what the best in class is, then bring it to me and then I make the decision. So I think you really hit the nail on the head there. That was a really good explanation. <laughs> I think I think too many people are afraid to include non-decision makers is because it opens up their coverage. So you start paying for impressions and clicks and exposure to the non-decision makers, which again mm-hmm. is what you want. But then the some of the non-marketing people who might make decisions will say, well, we really only want to get meetings with with these with these people. A big part of that comes into you know educating the the rest of the stakeholders, proving that ABM success, but it's also, yes, we got the champion in. If that champion doesn't think they can be the one on that meeting, your job becomes how can we help facilitate that user to sell it to their boss? And then we're getting to sales, but it's still a line there. That, that's why it's important for us. Exactly. And one thing too, I'll say, you know, as we are tightening the budget conscience, what's cool about the tools is, right, like we know that we're not selling to marketers or, or sellers like salespeople, so we can deprioritize them in our campaign. So we really are focusing on the people that matter. But again, too, you know, if you're IT and you want to, I don't think IT is going to bring sales and marketing in for a data purchase decision, but in the flip side, right? Like if you're trying to get a group together to create that water cooler moment or kick off a project, you definitely want to include the head of each department that you think it makes sense and it's relevant for. For me, like I love seeing platform usage skyrocket in our ABM platform. So we've seen year over year, 200% increase. And it's, you know, not just the marketing team, it's the sales team, it's analytics, it's like, teams within marketing and sales. So there's lots of usage because there's lots of different use cases for the platform and the data. You know, you can push into Salesforce, you can pull in data from different platforms to make it smarter. So that really excites me when you see a lot of people are using the platform that you implemented and that you're the internal champion of. Shifting gears a bit, you've spoken at events, a bunch of events. I saw recently B2B MX. You spoke at, which is pretty big. That's awesome. Congrats. I saw you also you. lectured at UC Berkeley, a few other things. What's one key message that you consistently emphasize whenever you speak about ABM? That's a great question. The one thing I always say is uh, we, cross the, we cross the finish line as a team. It's like a, ABM is a team sport. Like there's a lot of cross-functional uh, collaboration that needs to go on, right? Whether you're integrating the platform into other platforms, getting people onboarded and training them, um, you know, teaching people how to use it. I, I think it's really important that you approach it as a team activity because everyone should be implementing ABM tactics and strategies to enhance their campaigns, their platforms, and how they work together. So I think that's the key takeaway I, I usually give. And um, we were at uh, Activate did a marketing meetup down in the South Bay last Tuesday. And, we're, and I was there speaking with um, some other leaders from Workday and from Google. And I think the similar insights just came out in the fact that, you know, like we are sometimes a team of one doing ABM, but we have to bring the whole board on board to get it implemented and to get it working the way we want it to, right? Because I think a lot of leaders will say, all right, get this up and running in the next month or so. And you're like, that's not gonna happen. Like we're gonna need at least six right. months get it set up and running to show results, especially with enterprise deals, they could take upwards of a year. So it's just like over communicate, don't over promise, be aware of shifting goals and priorities, right? Like when I started, it was like, drive awareness, get MQLs. Now it's all about drive SQLs, drive pipe, accelerate revenue. Okay, that's fine. We're not going to get there overnight. 
But as long as we're aligned that we're going to get there and the time that we agreed and we're going to push each other, but not off a cliff, I think we're in a good space. <laughs> yeah, I mean, marketing, marketing's in the name, account-based marketing, but... <laughs> That doesn't so there's there's because you need the sales alignment for the SDR or the AE or whatever you call them that's working on the deal themselves. You need that alignment from the people driving the contract home, and then you need alignment too with the customer success or whatever that you call them again, their onboarding specialist to make sure that everyone is aligned. Because and this is when upsell cross sell comes in that when you're selling to big accounts, specifically on enterprise, you might have one small team that's using your tool or your product. And your goal too is to maybe get the other teams on board. So that's where the customer success comes in because they're they're the key to, to that. Exactly. That, and we like to use a little bit of propensity scoring to say like, you know, if you're good for one product, you're probably good for another. So that's our way to tell if they're good for a cross-sell upsell because with data storage, right, you are either storing it on-prem, on-premises in a hard drive, or it's created at the edge. And a lot of data is created at the edge, but it succumbs to, you know, like a lot of disaster recovery issues or backup issues. So you kind of need a mixture of both. You need it on-prem just in case there is some sort of disaster or some sort of hack, something like that, that could affect the cloud. And then you also need a mobility product that brings it from the edge back to on-prem. So the opportunity for the bundle is there. It's not just progressive that's bundling. It's everybody. <laughs> but so full alignment is, is what you always emphasize when you speak. What's it like just in general getting up to speak at a B2B event where there's just all these eyeballs? Like, were you always a public speaker? Like, is this new for you? What's it like? It's definitely new for me. Seagate had a learning initiative where we had to put 40 hours into what we were interested in. And obviously my interest is in account-based marketing. I started doing it around four years ago. And for me, I was always a little nervous about public speaking. Like I'm probably the loudest one of the friend group so much so that everyone's like, okay, that's enough. But for me, like sometimes when I get up in front of crowds, I would like panic or the lights would kind of um, freak me out. But because I know what I'm talking about, because I do it every day, I feel like in this setting of speaking at events or speaking at uh, universities to students um, or people in our field, right, that are doing the same thing. I, I just feel like it's a really cool opportunity where I just kind of lose myself in the moment. And I just have a lot of fun talking about what I enjoy and what I love doing. And then uh, the aftermath of it all is great because you, you get off the panel and people are trying to come up and talk to you and you're like shoving like the lunch and learn food down your mouth and everyone just wants to chat and people come up to you with issues and you're like, oh, I solved that this way and they just love it because it's like a quick little nugget Then that's all they really want to kind of go on with their day. Like I've been like putzing around with this for like a month and I can't figure out how to do it. I was like, okay, this is how I did it. And they're like, oh my God, perfect. I was like, here's like a person you can talk to at that company that helped me or something like that, you know? The one thing I think I said that whenever we well, at uh, BWMX, or no, sorry, uh, at the Activate event, so they were you know, mentioning a product they were using and, and they were just like, I can't get it to work. And I was like, you know, sometimes you just need to ask for a new CSM because sometimes the CSM assigned to your account might not be the, the leader or champion you need based on the timeline you have in place. And I don't think companies have an issue just switching it out, depending on if you need someone with a little bit more or less experience, right? Because on the client side, we're dealing with dozens of campaigns, dozens of vendors, dozens of platforms. So we might not have all the time in the world to deep dive into one specific thing. And, and let's be honest, if it's an enterprise software or just a software that's been around for a long time, Oftentimes, you're probably going to know more than your CSM uh, so, or your CSM will just rotate a lot. So yeah. that, that, that is a good, a good hack to, to ask for them. 
I'm very comfortable behind the mic right here talking. I'm comfortable speaking on team meetings, stuff like that. But I feel like when it comes to, I mean, I haven't been a, a speaker at an event like that. But I feel like when it would come to that, I would be kind of like nervous. What would you say to to someone like me who might be be like comfortable remotely behind the computer, mm -hmm. uh, but hasn't spoken publicly before? What tips would you have? That's a good question. And again, I agree with you. Like right now, we're in the comfort of our apartments, our home offices. We've got all the creature comforts. But when you have to go out there and kind of put yourself in a new and uncomfortable situation, like when I spoke at Berkeley, um, you know, the professor was a close friend of mine and it was my first speaking opportunity. So I was speaking with students, graduate level students in entrepreneurship and marketing. I brought my partner kind of as like someone who could just like, you know, level me out and take some good picks and also just like made me feel a little bit better that he was there. And then, you know, as I just kept doing them, I think it was a little bit different going from students um, to then people in our space, which were like, oh, I don't want to make a mistake or I'm here, you know, telling people how I'm doing it. Maybe they're doing it differently. Maybe they're older. But a lot of people are pretty receptive. They're coming to these events to learn from you and from other people. So it's really just a great networking opportunity to meet people, find potential opportunities to partner going forward. And I would just say go for it. And like you make some hiccups. Yes, you can't edit it out like what we're doing now when it goes on demand. We can tweak it. We can clean it up. But people don't really remember a lot of like the smaller things. They're really just taking away those one or two nuggets of snackable information or content that they pulled from your speech. And I think a lot of people too know that it's difficult. So they're just giving you a lot of props for showing up in the first place. So I would just say, don't, don't get worried. Just put yourself out there because like the worst thing you can do is fail, but then you get up and you do it again. And I think now I've spoken at a few events and I think I just get better at every event. Like you learn things that you learn things you don't want to say, you things you want to focus on. And Preparation is key, obviously, right? Like always asking for things mm -hmm. in advance, always having something in your back pocket in case like there's a lull in the moment or maybe just like a sip of water when you can't say anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I edit very little out of this. We like I edit out dead space and stuff. I yeah. I should I should probably edit out more than I do from what I say, <laughs> but I, I don't. Um, But yeah, those those are good tips. And I mean, I've been the person in the seat. I'm always like, I'm here to learn from you. So like, I feel like an hour head. It's kind of like when you go to the gym and you're like, is that person judging me? And it's like, <laughs> no, everyone's just doing their own thing. Like they're working out. No one's there to, to judge. They're there to learn. Depends on the gym you go to. But yeah, no, I agree. I see some people wow. sometimes like, the right way. I'm not a trainer. I'm not going to jump in. But worried sometimes. Whoa. I see things online. I'm like, it's definitely not how you do a pull. <laughs> <laughs> um so one more question before moving to our next segment but you use this term extreme ownership right mm -hmm. when i google that all that comes up is navy seals Jocko now, willing I, yeah it's his book <laughs> so i i did some research on you i don't think you've been in the navy have you no. <laughs> so where does where does extreme ownership come from for you specifically, and then like talk about what that means? Sure. So um, I love the Tim Ferriss podcast. I probably listen to all of them. I think he's almost at seven hundred. Um, we're kind of from the same area. He went to Princeton University. I grew up right outside of, uh, right outside of Princeton. Um, I just love everything he talks about. It's all like it's all about like little lifestyle hacks, four hour work week, four hour body, four hour chef, tools of titans. Love his books. Very interested in entrepreneurship and everything around that. Um, he recommended this book. And after I listened to Jocko Willing's podcast, I got really interested. It's all about his journey into Iraq and to Baghdad and to Ramadi and everything he encountered, um, any issues or mistakes that occurred. He always took full ownership, even if it you know, was kind of 
outside of his control because he was the squad leader. So like when you're bringing in a new initiative, like ABM, you are the leader. And if anything goes wrong, you have to take full accountability, right? Even if it, you weren't responsible for that specific thing, you have to be accountable. And I think that's something I learned early in my advertising days, being the account manager, like everything that went out, I owned at the end of the day, even if I wasn't the copywriter or the art director, like I own the account, I had ownership over everything. So you just have to be ready to fall on the sword, even if it's not your fault, because you have to protect your team, you know, like keep that space between the client and and the agency separate. But for me, it's just about, you know, wanting to get involved, wanting to understand the process, building new processes, making sure that, you know, everyone has a say and that everyone feels that they're involved. So just like being a team leader is important. And I think that's something that everyone should strive to do or to be. Cool. All right. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Yes. Be, lead a be it. Well, it's time for our next segment, Spill the Tea with Lee. That's right. This is Fastest Podcast with B2B. And it's going to get juicy. All right, let's start with an easy one. So you are a self-proclaimed foodie. If you could compare your approach to a successful ABM campaign to making a gourmet dish or what goes into a, or a gourmet dish, what ingredients would, it, would this ABM can, campaign contain? That's a great question. I think an ABM campaign would be like a preset gourmet three-course meal, right? Where they've researched what you're interested in, what your palate's like, and then they build a customized meal around that, right? So you're getting there. They already know what your allergies are. They know your preferences and they build something around that. It's all about taste. It's all about molecular gastronomy. It's all about making you think there's something when there's not. Like, there was a restaurant in Portugal and they had like this olive dish, but it was actually a pureed olive inside of a bubble. And it like looked like an olive, but it was like a bubble of olives. So it was like all of this really meta shit that I loved. And um, Sixth Sense actually did a really cool um, dinner where they had some leaders in the space come and everything was very ABM centric, right? So you were using a blue light to uncover intent keywords that were specific to your account on your menu. And uh, the meal was set up in a way that, you know, everything was really involved they were breaking bottles with swords and and the best thing was that at the end they showed a clip from the movie the sixth sense <laughs> so like and i was the only one that laughed i guess i don't know if no one else has seen that movie but like it was a pretty good dinner and it was done by their chief evangelist who i'm like is that just the new cmo term like when you're done as cmo they just put you in this evangelist role like can i be an evangelist like, well, this is like actually why this is why you and everyone else should listen to my episode with Karina Owens, because we talk a lot about that and how it differs and how CMO tends to be a bit more admin and less maybe customer hands-on focused type stuff. So, so yeah, I, I think that that's cool. But, but yeah, maybe evangelism is the next route for both you and me. I'm here for it. <laughs> it's very right, like so. focused every other day it's like abm abx like we're constantly renaming things and i'm just like no, it's no, not no, no. Much a, what is that Let, let's talk so about that lots changed but like nothing's changed you're like okay like why don't we just focus on what matters and stop with the branding exercises <laughs> do we just say abm and abx whenever we feel like it like come on now like what what is like like what is it what's the difference now that is a great question. I think the X is just experience because they're adding an experiential now that COVID's over, I guess. They can just flop that back right. in. I mean, I think events are important and they are good, but it's hard, I think, to show ROI, right? Because you can't really track. It's like they wrap this event. Were they invited to the event because they already showed interest or did they like convert at the event, right? So 
Spinning events is a hard one. Yeah, well, I mean, people say that about AUBM in general, too, like proving revenue. How, how, mm. how, what do you say about that, like proving revenue from ABM? And especially when it's long-ass sales cycles, yeah. there's so many touch points from everybody. Well, the great thing about demand base is that I can see from like a year back, so I can see when the account showed intent, right? And then that intent signal gets sent directly to our sales team so they can say, all right, are they in early stage research? Are they looking at cloud computing, data mobility, or are they looking at our competitors, right? Late stage vendor evaluation. So that's two ways we differentiate intent. And then we send those different reports to sales. It also sits and is aggregated in our engagement and methodology. So intent, um, web traffic responses to campaigns, specific web pages, all that's aggregated into a score that is then again sent to sales. So they get a stack rank list of their accounts based on the score. So everything is kind of categorized and shared with sales in a really nice way. It's a snapshot report. It's about 15 different reports they can utilize. But again, too, like I can see from that first intent signal, that first buying signal, all the way to the call that was logged by PDT or SDRs to the meeting being booked. So it's really important for me to show attribution. Um, and it, it's helpful that we have the platforms in place to help. Yeah, you, you, you got it. You got to prove it because otherwise <laughs> nobody no. want it. Um, but we mentioned a bunch of tools. If you let's talk tech stacks because mm -hmm. it's really with Lee, the hot takes here. If you had to pick a tool that, like, and it doesn't have to be a specific one, it could be a set of tools, but if you had to pick tools that everyone should have when they're getting started with ABM versus a tools that are nice to have, or maybe like when you're really enterprise, you should have. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I think obviously you want to have a strong CRM, Salesforce, definitely. I think we're the sixth largest instance of Salesforce in the world. We're one of their first customers. So strong CRM, a great marketing automation platform, Marketo. I've, I've never used it, but I've seen it. It kind of gives me Oregon Trail vibes. Um, any marketing <laughs> automation platform, I think, is just kind of a little bit older, kind of difficult. You, again, need someone to manage it full time. So you need a good marketing automation platform. And then these are the two main components that you should then be plugging into your ABM platform, right? So demand base, uh, Sixth Sense, uh, Rollworks, you've got Terminus, right? Each one, I feel like, is good at mm -hmm. one or two things. And then they bought another company, merged it, and they're saying, now we do ABM. And so it's kind of difficult because Rollworks is, you know, originally an ad platform, right? They have their own DSP. So if you really want to focus on the campaigns, Rollworks is probably the way to go. Sixth Sense started with the predictive analytics and the scoring, and then they bought other platforms, merged into one. I like Demandbase because it kind of gives you a little bit of everything. And I would say that it's nice to have because you can obviously get the additional features if you want them or kind of wait until you don't. But it also integrates well with a lot of our other tech stacks. So, for example, we use Outreach. And there's a little Chrome extension widget that allows you to take top engaged contacts from demand base and put them right into outreach sequences. So sales loves it because they only have to have one tab open versus six to 10 tabs and all the toggling and then, you know, your head explodes. So I think less is more in terms of platforms. The easier they speak to one another, the better our lives are. And for enterprise too, it's difficult because I think there's just a lot of enterprise tech that's a little bit old and it's in its place and it's not going anywhere. And it takes a long time to onboard new tech and it takes tons of people. If it's above a certain price point, it takes even more time. If it involves, you know, different platforms, it involves, you know, additional layers of IT. So if you can sell in like a, a feature or a smaller product version of your product into an enterprise, that might work. And then you cross sell, upsell the rest. But what I did see a lot being at smaller companies is you end up getting like a templatized out of the box version that's really not that great. And then the CSMs are like the C squad. 
because you're not spending that much. And then it's almost impossible mm-hmm. to get off the ground. No one uses it. And then you get rid of it the next year. I think it goes back. So CRM really is the foundation of everything. Mm-hmm. Then you go from there and we get the tech data. Platform, ABM platform, data mm-hmm. enrichment, like lead space. Um, tech target's great as well. Priority engine. We love that. Um, there, I think... Beyond seamless AI for mobile dials, there's Lusha, there's ZoomInfo, there's a bunch of platforms out there. I really do think that with the economy shrinking, that a lot of these companies will eat each other and then we'll get the best solution out there, hopefully at a better price. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we'll see. We'll see you there. Um, <laughs> so you started ad agencies. I, too, started on the agency side. I might need to go back. Uh, but uh, what are some things from the agency life that you don't miss now that you're in-house? Oh, my God. Let me go through my long list of things. Yes. Uh, the end of day requests every day. That I don't miss. Everything being on fire and urgent, even though it's not, but it is for you. And then you never hear back for like a week. The non-accountability, I feel like, of being in an agency because everyone's just like, it just feels like it's on fire all the time. And I don't miss it. And it's hard to like feel tied to a brand that you're not really representing. Like being in-house, you feel like you're part of that brand. You want to protect that story and that narrative and help grow it. Whereas on the agency club side, you know, I was managing like five or six different accounts. It's just way too much. I feel like they just kind of overload you until you burn out um, and you never really get the support you promise. So I personally can never go back to an agency. I did it for seven years. I did it for the beginning of my my career and you can see at agencies there's people who are entry level doing all the work and then there's people who are senior level who are kind of managing them there's no one in the mid-level because all the mid-level people are tired of the instability of the you know like every december am i going to have this job are we going to lose the account you know the layoffs so i think a lot of mid-level people want stability and they go in-house because you know you get the benefits um you get that protection of a stable job you get like a good loyal team that's not going to disappear year over year Whereas with an agency, it's just kind of so in flux. And everyone I know is still out of agencies. They're like, are you hiring? Like, we got to get out of here. It's, it's on fire. And I'm like, I know. Like, welcome to my life. <laughs> yeah, there's always a client fire. I, I just don't miss billable time and having to oh, worry yeah. about all that Logging admin your- stuff. Because, <laughs> yes, and especially once you get senior there, it's like not just your hours, but you have to worry about all your direct reports hours and retainers. And it's like... You're doing the campaigns, but you're also doing all this admin stuff. Um, yeah. So we and don't miss like, very similar things. You don't bill correctly, and then you have to go retroactively fix it because then it overbills and scope creep. Or you've got, we had our one guy who didn't bill for a year and a half. And then he went back and like retroactively billed. And we're all like, okay, like this isn't right. <laughs> Dealing with that, that, I think the politics too, is just was too much. So many departments, um, yeah. so many different bosses, quote unquote. But like, yeah. I think, I think to to say, like, you know, give a good thing. So I'm not just fully shady it. Like agencies, you are gonna learn at agencies. No, no other people say you're gonna learn so much at startups, and you do. But like a fast paced startup, it's nothing compared to an agency. And I'm 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 happy to say that. Like I'm gonna I agree. some people I might learned- disagree. Like it's nothing. Too much at agencies. Yeah. So I learned a lot at startups too. I think just, and the more you go in-house, I think the more siloed you get and the bigger the company. And so it might be, it's not that I'm not learning as much. I was also very junior in my career where I didn't know like the standard banner yeah. size 
or how to construct a video. And now that I know all of that, like I can launch an ABM campaign because I know like when an agency quotes me or says it'll take this long, I'm like, does it take that long? Because I used to do this and I know exactly. how long it should take, you should work on it. So I think having agency side going client side makes you like the ultimate um, client because you're super buttoned up, you're super organized and you know everything. You know all the kind of tricks and tips that they might try to throw in there. And you're like, all right, like I used to do this, so I know how it should right. be done. How I expect it to be done. Let's just get aligned on that before we jump into it. <laughs> and then I can come into a startup and be like, hey, you have four of these agencies. You don't need any of them because I'm here now. And <laughs> like, or yeah, or it's like maybe we only really need three of them or one of them. But yeah, I mean, there's just so much you learn at agencies because you're doing the work like there is no other. You, do, you learn so much. Yeah, you you learn so much for from startups. But again, it's like. You're, you're not doing one campaign, you're doing 15 campaigns, and you're getting all this data. Um, and yeah, they're not all the same clients and not the same type of things, but you're getting data and practice at such a higher rate. Definitely. Yeah, I always like all to right. joke, you're spending the client's money and you're learning on their dime. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes, but it's like, it's all about iterating and like, if, if you don't spend, you can't learn. But that's, that's also the advantage of hiring the senior level people who already have learned. Yeah, who have experience. Go there. No yeah. Dan, thanks so much for your time. To wrap up, what is one myth or just, just idea that you love debunking when it comes to ABM, MarTech, paid media? What is just one of those myths that you just absolutely love debunking? I just think, like, with kind of what we mentioned before, like, it happening overnight. Like, I think that's just a little wild. I think that anything can really happen overnight. You know, I think it takes a few months to get a platform on board. It takes a year to get it purchased and implemented and then the training and the onboarding. So I would just say like slow and steady, open lines of communication. Um, don't expect something to happen overnight and have it be done well. Because yes, it can happen overnight, but it won't be done well. And then no one's going to be happy. So align on how long it's going to take and who needs to be involved and the effort that it's going to take to get it to market. And, you know, you want a positive result and a positive outcome. You need to be aligned on how you're going to get there together. Yes. We live in a world of instant gratification, but that doesn't apply to real B2B success, people. Well, Dan, <laughs> this has been so, so fun. I know people can reach out to you on LinkedIn, but are there other events you're speaking at or anything else you'd like to call out before we wrap? Oh, yeah, I would say for now, just LinkedIn is the best way to reach me. Always down to meet in person. I'm in the Bay. So just feel free to reach out and set up a time. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dan. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I will see you next time on B2B, the sassiest podcast for B2B.